How may we cure distractions in holy duties? By Thomas Manton, 1620-1677 Corporate worship is meant to honor God as we praise Him in song, prayer, communion, fellowship, and by the preaching of His eternal word. Ephesians 5, verse 19, Acts 2, verse 42. As simple as it may seem, because of its intricacy, our weekly church services are always in danger of becoming perfunctory. Thomas Brooks said, The little wedge knocked in makes way for the greater, and the little wedge which begins us down the road to hollow lip-serving worship is the distracting thought. In this sermon, delivered at the morning exercises of Piner's Hall in 1672, Thomas Manton unmasks the true nature of this monstrous sin, then enumerates its causes and cures. You hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth near unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 15, verses 7-8 through 8. In this chapter, you will find a contest between Christ and the Pharisees about their traditions and old customs, which they valued above the commandments of God, as it is usual with formal men to love chains of their own making and to make a conscience of a tradition, when yet they can dispense with the commandment. And thereby they reveal themselves as hypocrites, who are more in externals than in internals, in show rather than substance, minding the formality rather than the spirit and life of service to God. Our Lord confirms his censure by the testimony of the prophet Isaiah, ye hypocrites, and so forth. I shall not stand explaining the words. Drawing nigh is a phrase peculiar to worship, especially to invocation. Mouth and lips are put for all external gestures, and that bodily exercise which is necessary to the worship of God, and I'm not talking about dominating, especially for words. But their heart is far from me. It chiefly intends their habitual averseness from God, but may also compromise the wandering and roving of the mind in duty, which is a degree and spice of it. Of that I shall treat at this time, and my note will be that distraction of thoughts or the removing of the heart from God in worship is a great sin and degree of hypocrisy. The text speaks of gross hypocrisy, or a zealous pretense of outward worship without any serious bent of heart towards God. But any removal of the heart from him in times necessary to think of him is a degree of it. For though distractions in worship are incident to the people of God, yet they are culpable and do so far argue the relics of hypocrisy in them. I shall show, number one, the greatness of the sin, number two, the causes, number three, 
the remedies. Number one, first, sad experience bears witness that there is such a sin. Vain thoughts intrude opportunately or importunately upon the soul in every duty. In hearing the word, we are not free, Ezekiel 33, verse 31, nor in singing. But chiefly, they haunt us in prayer and of all kinds of prayer. We are most easily disturbed in mental prayer when our addresses to God are managed by thoughts alone. Words bound the thoughts, and the inconvenience of an interruption is more sensible as occasioning a pause in our speech. But in mental prayer, when we join with others to keep time and pace with the words, unless the Lord quickens them to an extraordinary liveliness, we find it very hard. But how great a sin this is, is my first task to show. I shall do it first by three general considerations, and then by speaking particularly to the present case. Letter A. First, generally. Number one. Consider how tender God is of his worship. He has said that he will be sanctified in all that draw near unto him. Leviticus 10, verse 3. To sanctify is to set apart from common use. Now, God will be sanctified. That is, not treated as an ordinary person but with special needfulness of soul and affection in keeping with so great a majesty. When you think to put him off with anything, you lessen his excellency and greatness, and do not sanctify him or glorify him as God. Therefore, God pleads his majesty when they would put a sorry sacrifice upon him as if everything were good enough for him. Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth to the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi 1 verse 14. To be slight in his service argues mean thoughts of God. Be not rash with thy mouth, nor hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. We forget our distance, and by a bold profaneness are too fellow-like and familiar with God when we are not deeply serious and exact in what we do and say in his presence but only babble over a few impertinent words without attention or affection. Certainly, God is very sensible of the wrong and contempt we put upon him, for he notes all. All things are naked and open to him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 verse 13. And he will not put it up. For he tells us that he will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. 
Exodus 20, verse 7. And he will be as good as his word. For the least disorders in worship have been sorely punished. Witness the stroke from heaven upon Aaron's sons. Leviticus 10, verse 2. The breach made upon Uzzah. 2 Samuel 6, verse 6. And the havoc made of the Beth Shemites. 1 Samuel 6, verse 19. And the diseases that raged at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And though judgments are not so rife and visible now upon our unhallowed approaches to God, yet he smites us with deadness where he does not smite us with death. For a man is punished otherwise than a boy, and judgments are now spiritual, which in the infancy of the church were temporal and bodily. Certainly we all have cause to tremble when we come before the Lord. Number two. The more sincere anyone is, the more he makes conscience of his thoughts and is more observant of them and troubled about them. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 7. When a man's thoughts trouble him, then he begins to be serious and to have a conscience indeed. So, David, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Psalm 119, verse 113. We think thoughts are free and subject to no tribunal. If there is any error in them, we think it is a very venial one. They betray us to no shame in the world. And therefore, we let them go without dislike or remorse. But a child of God cannot pass over the matter so. He knows that thoughts are the immediate births of the soul, and do much reveal the temper of it. The actions begin there, and if vain thoughts are permitted to lodge there, he will soon fall into further mischief. And therefore, he considers what he thinks, as well as what he speaks, and does so at all times, especially in worship, where the workings of the inward man are of chief regard, and the acts of the outward only required as a help to our serving God in the Spirit. Philippians 3, verse 3. Number 3. Carelessness in duties is the highway to atheism. For every formal and slight prayer hardens the heart and makes way for contempt of God. Men that have made bold with God in duty, and it succeeds well with them, their awe of God is lessened, and the lively sense of his glory and majesty abated.
until it is quite lost. By degrees, they outgrow all feelings and tenderness of conscience. Every time you come to God slightly, you lose ground by coming, until at length you look upon worship as a mere custom or something done for fashion's sake. Letter B. Secondly, particularly. Number one. It is an affront to God and a kind of mockery. We wrong his omniscience as if he saw not the heart and could not tell man his thoughts. It is God's essential glory in worship to be acknowledged as an all-seeing spirit and accordingly to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. John 4 verse 24 Thoughts are as audible to him as words. Therefore, when you prattle words and do not make conscience of your thoughts, you do not worship him as a spirit. We wrong his majesty when we speak to him in prayer, but do not give heed to what we say. Surely we are not to prattle like jays or parrots, words without affection and feeling, or to chatter like cranes, Isaiah 38 verse 14, or be like Ephraim, whom the prophet calls a silly dove without an heart, Hosea 7 verse 11. A mean man takes it ill when you have business to talk with him about, and your minds are elsewhere. You would all judge it to be an affront to the majesty of God if a man should send his clothes stuffed with straw or a puppet dressed up instead of himself into the assemblies of God's people and think that this should supply his personal presence. Yet our clothes stuffed with straw or an image dressed up instead of us, such as Michal put into David's bed, 1 Samuel 19, verses 12 through 13, would be less offensive to God than our bodies without our souls. The absence of the spirit is the absence of the more noble part. We pretend to speak to God and do not hear ourselves, nor can give any account of what we pray for. Let me give you Chrysostom's comparison. A man would have been thought to have profaned the mysteries of the Levitical worship if, instead of sweet incense, he should have put into the censer sulfur or brimstone, or mingled the one with the other. Surely our prayers should be set forth as incense, Psalm 141 verse 2. And we do not affront God to his face by mingling in so many vain, sinful, proud, filthy, and blasphemous thoughts. What is this but to mingle sulfur with our incense? Again, when God speaks to us and knocks at the heart, and there is none within to hear him, is it not an affront to his majesty? Put it in a temporal case. If a great person should talk to us, 
and we neglected him and entertained ourselves with his servants, he would take it as a spite and contempt done to him. The great God of heaven and earth often calls you together to speak to you. And if you think so slightly of his speeches as not to attend, but set your minds adrift to be carried hither and thither with every wave, where is that reverence you owe to him? It is a wrong to his goodness and the comforts of his holy presence. For in effect, you say that you do not find that sweetness in God which you expect, and therefore are weary of his company before your business is over with him. It is said of the Israelites, when they were going for Canaan, that in their hearts they turned back again into Egypt. Acts 7 verse 39. They had more mind to be in Egypt than under Moses' government, and their thoughts always ran upon the flesh pots and the belly cheer they enjoyed there. We are offended with their impatience and murmurings and the affronts they put upon their guides. And do we not do the same and worse in our careless manner of worshiping? When God has brought us into his presence, we do in effect say, Give us the world again. This is better entertainment for our thoughts than God and holy things. If Christians would but interpret their actions, they would be ashamed of them. Is anything more worthy to be thought of than God? The Israelites' hearts were upon Egypt in the wilderness, and our hearts are upon the world, nay, every toy. Even when we are at the throne of grace and conversing with him who is the center of our rest and the fountain of our blessedness. Number two, it grieves the Spirit of God. He is grieved with our vain thoughts, as well as our scandalous actions. Other sins may shame us more, but these are a grief to the Spirit, because they are conceived in the heart which is His presence chamber and place of special residence. And He is most grieved with these vain thoughts which haunt us in the time of our special addresses to God because his peculiar operations are hindered, and the heart is set open to God's adversary in God's presence, and the world and Satan are allowed to interpose in the very time of the reign of grace. They are in solio in its royalty, commanding all our faculties to serve them. This is to steal away the soul from under Christ's own arm, as a captain of a garrison is troubled when the enemies come to pray under the very walls in the face of all his forces and strength. Therefore, it is certainly is a grief to the spirit when our lusts have power to disturb us in holy duties and the heart is taken up with 
unclean glances and worldly thoughts while we present ourselves before the Lord. God looks upon his people's sins as aggravated because they were committed in his own house. In my house I have found their wickedness. Jeremiah 23 verse 11. What is this but to dare God to his very face? Solomon says, A king sitting upon his throne scattereth away evil with his eyes. Proverbs 20 verse 8. They are bold men that dare break the laws when a magistrate is upon the throne and actually exercising judgment against offenders. So it argues much impudence that when we come to deal with God as sitting upon the throne and observing and looking upon us, that we can yet lend our hearts to our lusts and suffer every vain thought to divert us? There is more of modesty, though little of sincerity, in those that say to their lusts, as Abraham to his servants, Tarry here while I go yonder and worship. Genesis 22, verse 5. Or, as they say, the serpent lays aside her poison when she goes to drink. When a man goes to God, he should leave his lusts behind him, not for a while and with an intent to entertain them again, but forever. However, even this argues some degree of reverence to God and sense of the weight of holy duties. But when we bring them along with us, it is a sign we little mind the work we go about. Number three, it is a spiritual disease. The soul has its diseases as well as the body. The unsteady roving of the mind or the disturbance of vain and impertinent thoughts is one of those diseases. Shall I call it a spiritual madness or fever or shaking palsy or all of these? You know, madmen make several relations and rove from one thing to another and are gone off from a sentence before they have well begun it. Our thoughts are as slippery and inconsistent as their speeches. Therefore, what is this but the frenzy of the soul? What mad creatures would we seem to be if all of our thoughts were open for all to see, or an invisible notary were lurking in our hearts to write them down? We run from object to object in a moment, and one thought looks like a mere stranger to another. We wander and run through all the world in an instant. Oh, who can count the numberless operations and workings of the mind in one duty? What impertinent excursions have we from things good to lawful, from lawful to sinful, from ordinarily sinful to downright blasphemous? Should any one of us, after he has been some time exercised in duty, go aside and write down his thoughts and the many interlinings of his own prayers, he would stand amazed at the madness and light discurrency of his own imaginations. 
or shall I call it the feverish distemper of their soul. Agari somnia, the sick man's dreams, are a proverb. In fevers, men have a thousand fancies and swimming toys in their dreams, and it is just the same with our souls in God's worship. We bring that curse upon us spiritually, which corporally God threatened to bring upon the Jews. I will scatter you to the end of the earth. Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. We scatter our thoughts hither and thither without any consistency. The heart, in regard of this roving madness, is like a runaway servant who, when he has left his master, wanders up and down and does not know where to fix or like those that are full of distracting business that cannot make a set meal, but take their diet by snatches. Number four, it argues the loss and not acceptance of our prayers. You are in danger of losing your worship, at least so much of it as you do not attend upon. And truly, to a man that knows the value of that kind of traffic, this is a very great loss. You that are tradesmen are troubled if you happen to be abroad when a good customer comes to deal with you. The ordinances of God are the market for your souls. If you had not been abroad with Esau, you might have received the blessing and gone away richly laden from a prayer, from the word and the Lord's supper. But you lose your advantages for lack of of attention. Allowed distractions turn your prayers into sin and make them no prayer at all. When the soul departs from the body, it is no longer a man, but a carcass. So when the thoughts are gone for prayer, it is no longer a prayer. The essence of the duty is lacking. And what is prayer? Damascene Defined it as the lifting up of the heart to God. Many have prayed without words, but never have any prayed without lifting up or pouring out of the heart. If a man should kneel and use a gesture of worship and fall asleep, no doubt that that man does not pray. This is to sleep with the heart, and the words uttered are but like a dream having but a slight touch of reason in them, a mere drowsy and attentive devotion. The soul is asleep, though the eyes are not closed and the senses locked up. Can we expect that God should hear us and bless us because of our mere outward presence? We are ashamed of those that sleep at a duty, and this is as bad or worse they may sleep because of a natural infirmity, such as weakness, age, or sickness. But this more directly proceeds from some slightness or irreverence. Well, then, how can we expect the fruit of that prayer to which we have not attended? It is a great presumption to desire God to hear those requests, a great part whereof we have not heard ourselves. If they are not worthy of our attention, they are far more unworthy of God's. The exposition of the Lord's Prayer in Cyprian's works 
as a notable passage to this purpose. You are unmindful of yourself. You do not hear yourself. And how can you with reason desire the blessing and comfort of the duty which you did not think worthy of your own attention and regard? I would not willingly grate too hard upon the tender conscience. It is a question that is often propounded. Do wandering thoughts altogether frustrate a duty and make it of no effect? And, in some cases, does not a virtual attention suffice? There is an actual intention and a virtual intention. The actual intention is when a soul distinctly and constantly regards everything that is said and done in a duty. And a virtual intention is when we keep only a disposition and purpose to attend, though many times we fail and are carried aside. This Aquinas calls priorium intensionum, first of the first intensity. Out of the scripture we may call it the setting of the heart to seek the Lord. First Chronicles 22 verse 19. Now, what shall we say in this case? On the one side, we must not be too strict, lest we prejudice the comfort and expectation of God's people. When did they ever manage a duty, but they are guilty of some wanderings? It is much to keep up our hearts to the main and solid requests that are made to God in prayer. But on the other side, we must not be too remiss, thus we encourage indiligence and careless devotion. Briefly, then, by way of answer, there is a threefold distraction in prayer. Distractio invita negligens et voluntaria. Number one, there is distracto invita, an unwilling distraction, when the heart is seriously and solemnly set to seek God. And yet, we are carried besides our purpose, for it is impossible so to shut doors and windows, but that some wind will get in. So also, to guard the heart is to be completely free from vain thoughts. But they are not constant, frequent, and allowed, but resisted, prayed against, striven against, and bewailed. And then they are not iniquities, but infirmities, which the Lord will pardon. He will gather up the broken part of our prayers, and in mercy give us an answer. I say where this distraction is retracted with grief and resisted with care as Abraham drove away the fowls when they came to pitch upon his sacrifice, Genesis 15 verse 11, it is said to be reckoned among the infirmities of the saints, which do not hinder their consolation. Secondly, there is distractio negligence, a negligent distraction when a man has an intention to pray and express his desires to God, but he prays carelessly and does not guard his thoughts, so that sometimes he wanders and sometimes recovers himself again, and then strays again and is in and out, off and on with God as a spaniel roves up and down and is still crossing the ways, sometimes losing the company he goes with 
and then returning to them again. I cannot say that this man does not pray at all, or that God does not hear him, but he will have little comfort in his prayers. Yea, if he is serious, they will minister more matter of grief to him than comfort. Boy, don't I know it. <laughs> Therefore, he ought to be more earnest and diligent in resisting this infirmity, so that he may be assured of audience. Otherwise, if his heart is not affected with it in time, by degrees all those motions and dispositions of heart that are necessary to prayer will be eaten out and lost. Thirdly, there is distractio voluntaria, a voluntary distraction, when men mind no more than the task or work wrought, and only go round in a track of accustomed duties, without considering with what heart they perform them. This is such a vanity of mind that it turns the whole prayer into sin. Number two. Secondly, the causes of this roving and impertinent intrusion of vain thoughts. Letter A. Satan is one cause, who, as Cassian speaks it, lie in wait to hinder the prayers of the saints. Whenever we minister before the Lord, he is at our right hand, ready to resist us. Zechariah 3 verse 1. And therefore the Apostle James, when he bids us draw near to God, bids us also to resist the devil. James chapter 4 verses 7 through 8 implying thereby that there is no drawing near to God without resisting Satan. When a tale is told, and you are going about the affairs of the world, he does not trouble you, for these things do not trouble him, or do any prejudice to his kingdom. But when you are going to God in a warm, lively, and affectionate manner, he will be sure to disturb you, seeking to abate the edge of your affections or divert your minds. Formal prayers pattered over do him no harm. But when you seriously set yourselves to call upon God, he says within himself, this man will pray for God's glory and then I am at a loss. For the coming of Christ's kingdom, and then mine, will go to wreck. That God's will may be done upon earth as it is in heaven. And that reminds me of my old fall. And that my business is to cross the will of God. He will pray for daily bread. And that strengthened dependence. For pardon and comfort. And then I lose ground. He will pray to be kept from sin and temptation, and that is against me. Thus, Satan is afraid of the prayers of the saints. He is concerned about every request you make to God, and therefore he will hinder or cheat you of your prayers. If you must be praying, he will will carry away your hearts. 
Now, he can do much if you are not watchful. He can present objects to the senses which stir up thoughts, yea, pursue his temptations, and cast in one fiery dart after another. Therefore, we have need to stand upon our guard. Letter B. The natural levity of our spirits is another cause. Man is a restless creature. We have much ado to stay our hearts for any space of time in one state, and much more in holy things, from which we are naturally averse. When I would do good, evil is present with me. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Oh, consider this natural feebleness of mind whereby we are unable to keep long to any employment, but are light, feathery, tossed up and down like a dried leaf before the wind or as an empty vessel upon the waves. It is so with us in most businesses, but especially in those which are sacred. The Apostle bids us pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. And we cannot do it while we pray. He is a stranger to God and his own heart who finds it not daily. This is an incurable vanity. Though we often repent of it, yet it is not amended. It is a misery that God would leave upon our natures to humble us while we are in the world, and that we may long for heaven. The angels and blessed spirits there are not troubled with those things. In heaven there is no complaining of wandering thoughts. There God is all in all, that they are there, but have one object to fill their understandings, one object to give contentment to their desires. Their hearts cleave to God inseparably by a perfect love. But here we are encumbered with much serving, and much work begets a multitude of thoughts in us. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but vanity. Psalm 94, verse 11. When we have summed up all the traverses, reasonings, and discourses of the mind, we may write at the bottom this as the total sum. Here is nothing but vanity. Letter C. Another cause is practical atheism. We have little sense of things that are unseen and lie within the veil in the world of spirits. Things that are seen have a great force upon us. Offer it now to thy governor, says the prophet Malachi 1 verse 8. God is afar off, both from our sight and apprehension. Senses bind attention. 
If you speak to a man, your thoughts are settled and you think of nothing else. But in speaking to God, you have not like attention because you see him not. Make us gods to go before us. Exodus 32 verse 1. Ah, aye. We would have a visible God whom we may see and hear, but the true God being a spirit and an invisible power, all the service that we do him is a task performed more out of custom than affection and is done in a slight, perfunctory way. Letter D. Strong and unmortified lusts, which, being rooted in us and having the soul at most command, will trouble us and distract us when we go about any duty. Each man has a mind and can spend it unweariedly as he is inclined, either to covetousness, ambition, or sensuality. For where the treasure is, there will the heart be also. Matthew 6, verse 20. Set the covetous man about the world, the voluptuous man about his pleasures, and the ambitious man about his honors and preferments. And will they allow their thoughts to be taken off? Surely not. But set any of these men about holy things, and presently these lusts will be interposing. Their hearts goeth after their covetousness. Ezekiel 33, verse 31. The sins to which a man is most addicted will engross his thoughts. This is one sign by which a man may know his reigning sin, that which interrupts him most in holy duties. For when all other lusts are kept out, Satan will be sure to set the darling sin to work to plead for him. If a man is addicted to the world, so will his musings be. If to mirth, good cheer, and vain sports, his thoughts will be taken up about them. If to the inordinate love of women, his fancy will be rolling upon carnal beauty, and he will be firing his heart with unclean thoughts. Letter E. Lack of love for God and holy things. Men are loath to come into God's presence if they lack of faith, and to stay there if they lack of love. Love fixes the thoughts and dries up those swimming toys and fancies that do distract us. We ponder and muse upon that in which we delight. Were our natural hatred of God and his means of grace changed into a perfect love, we would adhere to him without distraction. We see that where men love something strongly, they are deaf and blind to all other objects. They can think and speak of no other thing. But because our love to God is weak, every vain occasion carries away our minds from him. And you will find this by your daily experience. When your affections flag in an ordinance, your thoughts are soon scattered. Weariness makes way for wandering. Your hearts are first gone, and then your minds. You complain, <clears throat> excuse me, 
You complain that you do not have a settled mind. But the fault is, is that you do not have a settled love. For that would cause you to pause upon things without weariness. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 1, verse 2. Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. David's mind would never run upon the word so much if his heart were not there. Thoughts are at the command in Beck of love. Where love bids them go, they go. And where love bids them tarry, they tarry. The saints first delight and then meditate. Letter F. Slightness and irreverence or a lack of sense of God's presence. A careless spirit will surely wander, but one deeply affected is fixed and intent. When Jonah prayed in the whale's belly, could he have a heart to forget his work? When Daniel prayed among the lions, could he mind anything else? When we are serious and pray in good earnest, we will call in all our thoughts and hold them under command. This question was put to Basil, or Basil, depending on what part of the world you're from. How can a man keep the mind free from distraction? His answer was, this evil came from slightness of heart and unbelief of God's presence. For if a man truly believed that God was before his eyes, searching his heart and trying his reins, he would be serious. All things are naked and open to him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 verse 13. God looks on and so do the angels. He looks on the heart and will you not be serious? Scholars may have a truant mind, yet the presence of their masters forces them to their books. The great God who tells man his thoughts sees our desires. That's C's S-E-E-S, not S-E-I-Z-E. The great God who tells man his thoughts see our desires, and thoughts speak louder in his ears than our words. Therefore, possess the heart with a dread of his glorious presence and with the weight and importance of the work we are about. Were we to deal with a man in a case of life and death, we would weigh our words and not rave like madmen. Letter G. The curiosity of the senses occasion a diversion. It is the office of the fancy to present, as in a glass, whatsoever is received by the external senses or offered by the memory, and so the understanding takes notice of it. The wandering eye causes a wandering heart. Solomon says, The fool's eyes are to the ends of the earth. 
Proverbs 17, verse 24. First his eyes rove, then his heart. The Apostle Peter says of unclean persons that they have eyes full of adultery. 2 Peter 2, verse 14. Moich alidos of the adulteress, as the word signifies. The eye is rolled upon the object, and then the dart is by the fancy transmitted to the heart. Senses are the windows and doors of the soul. Keep the senses if you would keep the heart. Job was at a severe appointment with his eyes. Job 31 verse 1. It is good when we go to God to renew these covenants and to agree with the heart that we will not go to God without it. With the eyes and ears that we will not see or hear anything but what concerns our work. It was a strange consistency and fixedness which Josephus speaks of when Faustus, Cornelius, Furius, and Fabius, with their troops, had broken into the city of Jerusalem, and some fled one way and some another. Yet the priests went on with their sacrifices and the holy rites of the temple as if they heard nothing. Though they rushed upon them with their swords, yet they preferred the duty of their religion before their own safety. And strange is that other instance of the Spartan youth in Plutarch that held the censer to Alexander while he was sacrificing, and though a coal lighted upon his flesh, he permitted it to burn there rather than by crying out, because he would have disturbed the rights of their heathenish superstition. Certainly, these instances should shame us Christians that do not hold the senses under a more severe restraint, but upon every light occasion, allow them to trouble and distract us in worship. Letter H. Worrisome and distrustful cares. When we are torn in pieces with the cares of the world, we cannot have a composed heart, but our minds will waver, and our dangers will recur to our thoughts and hinder the exercise of our faith. God took special care of the Jews when they went up to worship, that they might have nothing to trouble them, and therefore he says, None of the nations shall desire the land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Exodus 34, verse 24. Augustine gives the reason of it, lest they should be distracted with thoughts about their own preservation. And one of the arguments by which Paul commends single life is freedom from the encumbrances of the world, that we may serve the Lord without distraction, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. Number three, thirdly, I will propound the remedies of distraction in holy duties. I might speak many things by way of mere counsel about guarding the senses, 
the use and abuse of a form, and so forth. But all these are like but external applications in physic or topical medicines as the binding of things to the wrists of the hands, which work no perfect cure of a disease unless the distemper is purged away. Therefore, I shall speak to those things that are most effectual. Letter A. Go to God and wait for the power of his grace. David speaks of it as his work. Unite my heart to the fear of thy name. Psalm 86 verse 11. Fix it. Gather it together. Penosan tenkardian mu, says the Septuagint. Make it one. The heart is multiplied when it is distracted by several thoughts. God has our hearts in his own hand, and when we can keep them up no longer, then he holds them up. When he withdraws his grace, we lose our life and seriousness. Even his meteors hang in the air as long as the heat of the sun is great, but when the sun is gone, down they fall. As long as the love of God and the work of his grace are powerful in us, we are kept in a lively, heavenly frame. But as that abates, the soul swerves and returns to vanity and sin. We read that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, so that she attended to the things that were spoken of Paul. Acts 16, verses 14 through 15. Attention there bears somewhat of a larger sense than we now consider it in, namely, a deep regard to the doctrine of life. Yet this sense of fixedness of spirit cannot be excluded. Go to God, then pray that he would keep your heart together. He that sets bounds for the sea and can bind up the waves in a heap and stop the sun in its flight. Certainly he can fasten and establish your heart and keep it from running out. Letter B. Meditate on the greatness of him before whom we are. It is of great consequence in duties to consider whom we take to be our party with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 verse 13. In the word, God is the party that speaks to us. Thou shalt be as my mouth, Jeremiah 15 verse 16, as if God spake by us, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. It is God that speaks, and the heathen king of Moab shows such reverence, that when Ehud said, I have a message to thee from God, he arose out of his seat. Judges 3, verse 20. So in prayer, you have to do with God. You do minister before him as really as the angels that abide in his presence. Oh, if you could see him that is invisible, you would have more reverence. A man that is praying or worshiping should behave himself as if he were in heaven immediately before God, in the midst of all the blessed angels, those 10,000 times 10,000 
that stand before God. Oh, with what reverence, with what fear, should a poor worm creep into his presence. Think then of that glorious all-seeing God, with whom you can converse in thoughts as freely as with men in words. He knows all that is in your heart and sees you through and through. If you had spoken all those things you have thoughts upon, you would be odious to men. If all the blasphemy, uncleanness, and worldly projects were known to those that join with us, would we be able to hold up our heads for blushing? And does not the Lord see all this? Could we believe his inspection of the heart? There would be a greater awe upon us. Letter C. Mortify those lusts that are apt to withdraw our minds. He that indulges any one vile affection will never be able to pray rightly. Every duty will give you experience what corruption is to be resisted and what thoughts we are haunted and pestered with when we come to God. God requires our prayer that we may be weary of our lusts and that the trouble that we find from them in holy exercises may exasperate our souls against them. We are angry with an importunate beggar that will not be satisfied with any reasonable terms, but is always obtruding upon us. Every experience of this kind should give us an advantage to free our hearts from this disturbance. The whole work of grace tends to prayer, and the great exercise and employment of the spiritual life is watching unto prayer. Ephesians 6 verse 18, and that prayer may not be interrupted. 1 Peter 3 verse 2. Letter D. Before the duty, there must be an actual preparation or a solemn discharge of all impediments that we may not bring the world along with us. Put off thy shoes off thy feet, said God to Moses, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Exodus 3 verse 5. Surely we should put off our carnal distractions when we go about holy duties. Gird up the loins of your minds, says the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1 verse 13. An allusion to long garments worn in that country. It is dangerous to come to prayer with a loose heart. My heart is fixed, says David. Oh, God, my heart is fixed. Psalm 57, verse 7. That is, it is fitted, prepared, and bent to God's worship. The soul must be set and put into a dexterous, ready posture. There must be a resolved shutting of the heart against God's enemy, lest he insinuate with us and withdraw our minds. Letter E. Be severe to your purpose, and see that you regard nothing but what the duty leads you unto. 
It is the devil's policy to cheat us of the present duty by an unseasonable interposition. Satan begins with us in good things that he may draw us to worse. What is unseasonable is not. Watch against the first diversion, however plausible it may seem, for it is an intruding thought that breaks the rank. In this case, sayest the spouse, I charge you that you awake not, my beloved, till he please. Song of Solomon 3 verse 5. Such a rigid severity should you use against the starting of the heart. If Satan should at first cast in a thought of blasphemy that would make thee quake and shake, therefore he begins with plausible thoughts. But be careful to observe the first strugglings. Yea, be not diverted by your very strivings against diversions, and therefore do not dispute with suggestions, but despise them. Nor stand examining temptations, but reject them, as blind Bartimaeus regarded not the rebukes of the people, but cried the more after Christ. Or as travelers that do not stand beating back the dogs that bark at them, but stay on their course. This is to be religiously obstinate and severe to your purpose. Condemned, Satan has less of an advantage against you. And when he is writing images upon the fancy, do not vouchsafe to look upon them. A crier in the court that is often commanding silence disturbs the court more than they that make the noise. So, disputing with our distractions increases them. They are better avoided by a severe contempt. Letter F. Bring with you to every holy service strong spiritual affections. Our thoughts would not be at such a distance from our work if our affections were more ready and more earnestly set. It is the unwilling servant that is loath to stay long at his work, but is soon gone. Could we bring ourselves more delightfully to converse with God, our hearts would hold our minds close, and we would not straggle as often as we do. Therefore, see that you do this, or else do nothing. I was glad, said David, when they said unto me, Come, let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Were we of this frame of spirit, many directions would not be needed. Now, what should hinder us from being thus affected? Are not the ordinances, are not the ordinances of God the special means of our communion with him, and the throne of grace the very porch of heaven? Can we be better off than in God's company, pleading with him for our soul's good and waiting for his blessing? Therefore, let us be glad and rejoice in his presence, and you will not easily find such outstrains of mind and thought. Letter G. Remember the weight and consequence of the duties of religion. This is a cure for slightness. 
you are dealing with God in a case of life and death. And will you not be serious? With what diligence and earnestness does an advocate plead with a man in a case wherein he himself is not concerned, either for the life of another or the inheritance or goods of another? And will you not plead earnestly with God when your soul is in danger, when it is a case of eternal life and death, as all matters that pass between God and us are? Certainly, if we did consider the weight of the business, the heart would be freed from this garish or garish wantonness. If Christ had taken you aside into the garden as he took Peter, James, and John, and you had seen him praying and trembling under his agonies, you would have seen that it is no light matter to go to God in a case of the salvation of souls, though you never have so much assurance of the issue as Christ had. The frequent return of Christian duties makes us to forget the consequence of them. In hearing the word, be serious, it is your life. Hearken unto the words of the law, for this is not a vain thing, because it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. Your everlasting state is upon trial, and the things that are spoken concern your soul. Every act of communion with God Every participation of his grace has an influence upon eternity. Say, therefore, as Nehemiah in another case, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Nehemiah 6, verse 3. Can you have a heart to mind other things when you are about such a great work as the saving of your soul? Letter H. Let every experience of wandering make you more humble and careful. If men did lay their wanderings to heart and retract them, even every glance with a sigh, the mind would not so boldly and so constantly digress and step aside. All actions displeasing are not done so readily. Therefore, it is good to bewail these distractions. Do not count them as light things. Speaking of these wandering thoughts, Cassianus said, More that come to worship, being involved in greater sins, scarcely count distractions of thoughts as an evil, and so the mischief is increased upon them. It is a sad thing to be given up to a vain mind, and such a frothy spirit as cannot be serious. Therefore, if we soundly humbled ourselves for these offenses, and they became our burden, they would not be our practice. One has said that huntsmen observe of young dogs, that if fresh game comes into view, they leave their old scent. But if it soundly beaten off from it, they kindly take to their first pursuit. The application of this is easy. If we reproved our hearts for this vanity and prayed against the sins of our prayers with deep remorse, this evil would not be so familiar with us. 
letter I, a constant heavenliness and holiness of heart. If men were as they should be, holy in all manner of conversation, in solemn duties, 1 Peter 1 verse 14, good and proper thoughts would be more natural and kindly to us. Those that live in a constant communion with God do not find it such a tedious business to converse with Him. If they have any excursion of thoughts, it is in their daily work and the offices of the common life, which they are always seasoning with some gracious meditations and short exclamations. They are in duty, they are where they would be. Constant gravity and seriousness is a great help to them. Men allow themselves a lawless liberty in their ordinary conversations, and then in prayer they know not how to gather up their hearts. As men are out of prayer, such they will be in prayer. We cannot expect that pangs of devotion should come upon us suddenly, or that when we come reeking of the world that we should presently leap into a heavenly frame. Letter J. The final remedy is frequent, solemn meditation. If the understanding was taken up with the things of God more often, and our thoughts were kept in more frequent exercise, they would come to hand all the better. There is a double advantage which comes to us by meditation. Number one, the soul gets more abundance of heartwarming knowledge and therefore will not be so barren and dry, which certainly is a cause of wandering. My heart indicteth a good matter, and then my tongue is as the pen of a ready writer. Psalm 45 verse 1. A man that boils and concocts truths in his heart has a great readiness of words and affections. There is a good treasure within him, Matthew 12, verse 35, out of which he may spend freely. One expresses it thus, He that has a store of gold and silver in his pocket, and but a few brass farthings, will more readily, upon every draft, come out with gold and silver than brass farthings. So he that has stocked his heart with holy thoughts will not find carnal musings so rife and frequent. Number two, by use, a man gets a greater command over himself. When we constantly leave the thoughts at random and never lay restraints upon them, it is in vain to think we shall keep them in order when we please. Fierce creatures become tame when frequently used by those that command them. Every art is difficult at first, such as writing, singing, or playing upon an instrument. But we get a facility by use and exercise. Yea, not only a facility, but a delight in them. And those things that at first we thought impossible by a little practice, grow easy. Certainly, the way of the Lord is strength to the upright, Proverbs 11, verse 29. And the more we set ourselves to any good thing, the more ready and prepared are we for it.